five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. Welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast. My guest this week is Gernot Gromer, the founder of the Austrian Space Forum. He's involved in space in a number of ways. The Austrian Space Forum does things like organizing analog Mars missions, conducting space research and building CubeSats. Gernot also has his own popular science TV show in Austria. So this episode is a rich conversation, touching on many interesting topics. Now this will also be the first episode where we will try something new. We have regularly been receiving follow-up questions from you, our listeners, and have been answering them in an ad hoc way. We now want to open this up to everyone. So, if you do have questions about the episode, please email us at spacebusinesspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We will do our best to answer them all. And if there's a question that we judge of high general interests to all listeners, we will answer it on the next episode as well as on our Twitter. Now here are a couple of short messages about our sponsors. Then please enjoy my conversation with Gernot Grömer. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. So Gernot, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Gernot, you are doing so many things in space. I honestly, I don't know where we should start, but we might as well start with the, the Austrian Space Forum, where you are the founder, I think until very recently, the president, and you were still involved as a director. So I have to ask you, what, what is the Austrian Space Forum? Because I have to be honest, when I think Austria and space, uh, please forgive me, the first thing that comes to my mind is always Felix Baumgarten. <laughs> the... I do have a connection with him, but maybe we can talk about this later. <laughs> sure. We'll come, back, we'll come back to that because he's, that's a very interesting thing. But Felix Baumgarten, for our listeners who may not know and may not remember, this was, I think, about you know almost 10 years ago. He did a parachute jump, not from space, because that's not possible, but let's say from the edge of space, from the stratosphere, where he went up on a stratospheric balloon capsule, sponsored by Red Bull, a very famous Austrian company, of course. Mm -hmm. But besides that, my limited knowledge of Austrian space, what does the Austrian <laughs> Space Forum do and what, what do we have going on in Austrian space? Absolutely. So... First of all, Austria does have its place in the space business, in the space field. Uh, there are about, in general, about 1,000 people working from one about uh, roughly about 100 uh, companies that are involved. The Austrian Space Forum is not a company. Uh, it is not a university institution. It's uh, not a club. It's a mixture of everything. We are a group of roughly 250 people from 20 nations. So actually, the word Austrian Space Forum is more of a historical connotation. I think our official... Uh, working language is BE broken English, um, so it's it's gone beyond that for sure. Since more than 20 years, actually, we're active, and we are from the academic output like a small uh, research institution, like a university institute or so. From the commercial point of view, like a small company, and from the institutional company uh, point of view, and an association at Austrian law. 
So we are people with a passion for space, um, from all different walks of life. So we're not only an organization of engineers and researchers, but we also have lawyers, we have economics people, we have designers. At one point, we even had a theologist about moral questions, what do you do when you die on Mars? And we do stuff. We love to get our hands dirty. That means we are building spatial simulators, we are flying CubeSats. Uh, we are doing a lot of uh, space education. We go to school classes, we do street science. So we're covering pretty big part of uh, of the space spectrum in Austria because nobody else does it. Is there, is there an Austrian space agency? Well, um, like in the Facebook status, it's complicated. Uh, so the thing <laughs> is that uh, we have the Ministry for Climate Affairs that includes also space activities, and they are delegating uh, a number of the space activities to a company called the Austrian Research Promotion, o uh, mm -hmm. Research Promotion Agency, and they are basically representing Austria at the boards uh, at the European Space Agency. So that's about it. So it's it's basically not an agency in a traditional sense, like DLR or like NASA. So they don't fly their own rockets. They don't do their own research. Mm -hmm. They're most, mostly at the, at the administrative side. So when it gets to uh, getting our hands dirty, we are more relying on uh, like the uh, Institute for Space Research at the Austrian Academy of Sciences or organizations like the Austrian Space Forum. But so if I if I look at the the Austrian Space Forum, so I should have mentioned this is basically like a non-for-profit group Absolutely. engaged in all of these various activities. And is that something you mentioned? Two hundred people. I, I I imagine those are probably the people who are somehow actively involved. Is this also like a larger like you know membership organization, the club where? Anybody can join? Uh, yeah, or we are membership-based, actually. So people apply to become a part of our group. And after a small screening process, uh, we want to take them in. They get a little bit of training here. So we have now established a training regime, actually. We just concluded the course last weekend, actually, where we call it the, the Gateway Drug to Space, where we do what we call the analog mission basic training uh, testing where we are uh, training people how to, well, work in the, in the space field, especially when it comes to human robotic missions from Mars. But we also have a small professional core uh, team that is paid staff, uh, because at a certain point when you do ESA projects, when you do European Union projects or so, you need a little bit more of work time than you can provide with as a volunteer usually. So it's a combination of professional staffers plus people with a passion for space who are trained specifically for the work. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're financed by your membership dues? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, that's only a minority of, of the financing sources. Okay. It's most European research funds. Uh, we also have a number of industrial corporations, for instance, mm -hmm. where companies come to us and say, well, there's a piece of hardware I would like to test in a, in a, in a crazy Mars simulation somewhere in the Negev Desert in Israel this year or you know, month, three years ago or so. And once they do so, we say, well, we could do that. Uh, we are very good at damaging things under controlled conditions because that's why they have the most, the, the steepest learning curve. So one of our engineering mantras we have is fail fast, fail cheap, and have a steep learning curve. <laughs> and we'll definitely come back and talk to the uh, about the analog missions. But that is very interesting. So you're basically like yeah, like almost like like you said, like a research and educational institution without being sort of a, a regular university. Is there? I mean, is there any other sort of like similar groups you can think of in in, in other places uh, in the world? A very good question. I, and to be honest, I don't know any other group that is really comparable to us. There are uh, you know grassroots organizations like the Mars Society, sure. uh, like like group of enthusiasts who are doing really put a lot of heart, blood into this type of research. 
Uh, and then there are paid groups or companies or so, which do their usual, like, like is a OSIF project or so, but not a lot in between. We, we didn't find a template uh, of how to do it. And this, this is very important for us. We're around for more than 20 years, as I said. And that means we had our share of scholarship fees we had to pay, metaphorically speaking, how to operate such a group and how to motivate people. Because the, we are expecting people to put on quite a significant part of their, their free time, their expertise, finding the triggering points, uh, how they can be involved was quite a process for us. Like uh, we always say that that when we when we motivate young people or we teach our young managers and our teams is that we will hold it like the quote from Antoine de, de, de Saint-Exupéry, the, um, the author of Le Petit Prince, uh, Little Prince, if you might know that, that book. And he said, if, if you want to build a ship, do not only teach the people how to put together sure. a piece of wood, but make them long for the ocean. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great quote. So, I mean, you mentioned that the forum has been around for quite a while. How, how did you guys originally come up with this? Oh, actually, we, we do have a, an ICU history from the International Space University. And for those who are not familiar with ICU, it's a, it's a very unique education institution where people are immersing in the world of space for a couple of weeks a month, depending on the program type, where you are breathing space air about you know 25 hours per day at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's possible because you move so fast. And so even to get back from ISU, that's a well-known phenomenon. It's called the ISU blues. You come back to your original institution and see, well, there's, oh, everybody's talking so slowly. Nothing's moving. Oh, I want to go back. Yeah. And so from that withdrawal symptoms, we founded the Austrian Space Forum. I mean, I mean, yeah, it's funny. It's a very, I mean, we could talk about ISU for hours. Maybe we'll, if you have some time at the end, we'll talk about ISU. But but, but you're right, 25-hour days. I mean, the, the other, it's called ISU, International Space University, but we all know the other meaning of the acronym. Mm-hmm. It's the Insufficient Sleep University. We'll come back to that. Rafael, when, you were also a student, I believe, were you? I was, yes. When was that? Uh, relatively recently, 2019. Ah, okay. So yeah, a newbie, actually. My year was 1997. Yeah, we were there. You, you, you were you were a pioneer. You was like te- you were testing out all of the uh, <laughs> the hardcore things which we now do on a regular basis. Where do you find new members these days for the for the forum? Um, there's a number of sources. First of all, academic sources. We have a number of people who are applying to be to be students with us. So they are doing their bachelor master thesis programs with us. So we're hosting them about you know typically I would say more than a dozen per year. We have people who stumble across us when they uh, you know when they read the newspapers, when they listen to podcasts just like yours, Raphael, uh, when they say, oh wow, this is a an interesting ecosystem where I can bring in my, my expertise, where I can work with, with like minds and get my hands dirty on. If people are interested, they simply go to the website and say, well, here's, here's my contact coordinates, uh, talk to me. And, and then uh, we, we say, well, let's learn how to work together. This is now a standardized process, actually, how we do this now in terms of what type of questions we ask them before they start the good expectation management. We have people who also come from the space field itself. So we, we have, and this is something I take quite pride into, we have ESA people from European Space Agency who are taking vacation to work with us on space stuff. And if anything else speaks for the motivation you can get in the Austrian Space Forum, I think this is certainly one big story, yeah. So, so this is really cool. If I understand you correctly there, so so students who may be writing their master's or PhD right. thesis, they can cooperate <laughs> with you and maybe kind of execute a you know, a, a research project. Yes, yes. That is an, <laughs> certainly an opportunity. And it comes to me now. Anybody from robotics, from space engineering, uh, finance, 
make us believe that you can contribute significantly to the cause and we'll, we'll, we'll continue the, the conversation. Is that research mostly taking place on the, the analog missions, which we'll talk about in a minute, or is that um, outside the analog missions? Not only. Uh, mostly, yes, but we also have people working on spatial development. We have people we have people working on CubeSat development. We have people working on space debris. We have people working on, on history topics, for instance. Uh, there's a number of things we, we do in a non-technical field as well. Mm -hmm. So this is certainly not restricted to engineering fields, but also to the, the humanities and social field as well. And just to be clear for our listeners, I, I assume this is not just like Austrian universities. Oh, yeah. Well beyond, yes, yes. I would say that maybe like 20% of the students come from Austrian universities. Let's talk a little bit about the analog missions. And, and for people who don't know analog missions, that's basically where, you know, you go to some place on Earth, it's typically somewhere isolated, and you sort of pretend you're on the moon or, or Mars or, or somewhere. And, you know, you put on a spacesuit, you have a habitat, you typically run experiments. And, and Gerald, I will, I will let you explain in, in much better detail um, what, what a typical analog mission looks like. But it's, of course, it's also like the sort of ultimate social distancing at the moment, right? Because you go to like <laughs> a really well. isolated place and, and lock yourselves up with some people. Of course, you know, have to make sure everybody's tested, I guess. But right. why don't you tell us more about what analog missions look like with the well, absolutely. well, first of all, uh, there's this mantra in the space flight industry saying test before flight. Every mistake <laughs> we make before the flight is a good mistake because it's one we hopefully don't repeat uh, once sure. we are there. And that's exactly what we do. So we are working in analogy to future flight missions, for instance, to Mars. Uh, so we're talking about a project that is yet to materialize in 20 to 30 years from now, there's so much to learn to develop and then study that we need to start this learning process already now. So what we're doing is we're developing spacefield simulators. We're talking about, you know, training what we call analog astronauts. They're very, very carefully selected in an enormously complex process. Um, and train them properly, find people who are staffing the mission support center, and then put the flight crew, well, call it the flight crew for historical reasons, and put them in the middle of the desert. And these are really strange places ranging from the northern Sahara, mm -hmm. uh, the Utah Badlands, the far desert in Oman. We go to subsurface areas in ice caves in Austria, for instance, because ice caves mm -hmm. on Mars are a pretty interesting hotspot for astrobiology on Mars, and let them work there under a very as representative as possible possible flight plan like if they would be on Mars. So when they go outside, they need to do this in a spacesuit. When they are doing experiments, they cannot choose any you know timing on their own, but they need to follow the flight plan. There's large team in the background in Austria in the mission supports and there's a dedicated facility for that where we have 350 square meters of exquisite uh, office space where we actually monitor the people with including the time delay and all the limitations you would have for Mars. When you do those missions, you know that you're not on Mars, but mentally you're not fully on Earth either. Okay, so you actually have the communications delay. So like the, like if Mars was on the other side of the Earth, I Absolutely. think it's like at least 20 minutes for memory. So, so somebody would have to wait 20 minutes for an answer. Yeah, small talk gets very boring on Mars. <laughs> I guess you have to talk to your, your, your crewmates. But so um, having said that, okay, you're saying desert and some other environments. Having said that, just to play devil's advocate, I mean, like if you're really out on the, the moon surface or Mars, I mean, basically everything in the environment will try to kill you. Oh, yes. <laughs> that, that's obviously a little bit like different from even even the desert. It's like, so I was wondering with these like analog missions, like could we not make them more extreme? Like we go, I don't know, we go to Antarctica, we go to like Camp 3 on Mount Everest, or is that just logistically like too difficult? Well, it is possible to question if it's reasonable. There's not the perfect analog site on Earth. The perfect analog site is Mars itself. So we are segmenting sure. it in, and basically saying certain aspects can be tested in different environments. Like if we go for really low temperatures, minus 110 degrees Celsius, 
reality is that not a lot, there's not a lot of bases on the Earth's surface where you can find it. You need to go into a laboratory environment. Yeah. Then there is the idea of uh, how does the sand interact uh, with uh, robotic vehicles, for instance. Uh, sand is the natural enemy of the astronaut, and that means you have to really be very careful in managing the sand and dust. So that wouldn't make sense to go down to Arctica, but you go into the in, in, the, in the desert where you have small grain size distributions, for instance, or when you study electrostatic charging of, 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 of certain particles and so on. So it depends on the research questions you have, which defines the best approximation you need to take. And so over the years, we have been conducting 12 expeditions so far, plus a number of many, many, many laboratory simulations. Uh, we know that how to, how to, how to sequence that, uh, that we can emulate almost everything, except for the gravity maybe, but even there we have a few ideas mm -hmm. how to mimic that. Uh, that also includes, uh, you know, uh, human factors aspects where it's more important to be isolated or be below, below the surface or so. Um, so Antarctica is a good place, but it's not the best Mars analog uh, location on Earth. Um, there are better ones. Yeah, I mean, now that you're explaining it, it actually makes sense, and I, I, I think you're right. I guess I was... I was thinking a lot from sort of like, because it fascinates me, like the crew psychology perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, sorry, I should say the crew psychology as in like the group psychology perspective, mm -hmm. but of course also the individual psychology perspective, right? And sort of like what happens to you if you're in an environment where really like, like there's really high risk to your life. But of course you make a good point that like, you know, if it's also about the experiments, then of course you have to go in an environment where, where that's, um, you know, that's suitable for conducting the experiments. But is, is the psychology element important? Is that being researched as well? Yeah, absolutely a lot. I would say about one third of the experiments we're doing are somewhat human factors related and majority of this is psychology oriented. It's about crowding. It's about what we call ice environments, isolated and confined environments, just like it would be in a submarine, for instance, or an Antarctic station for a, for a winter over period. We see the same phenomena happening in our missions like we do in, as I said, Antarctic missions, for instance. And so also the solutions we come up with are pertinent to those as well. That means you can take it even one step further. If you think of the COVID pandemic right now, a lot of people were constrained to their um, to their living quarters, just like an astronaut on the station, so you couldn't get out. And we know that the phenomena we see here in the broad population are very similar to what we experience during our missions, which means the mitigation measures, like how to, to do to do get the right mindset what to do in such an isolation situation. If you look at the recommendations of a psychologist during the pandemic, they are really similar to what we, we train our astronauts to as well, like structure your day and, and no, don't stay in your pajama all day long and so on. And so we can even say that the first spin-offs of a Mars mission that is yet to happen in 20 to 30 years, years from now, the first spin-offs we are seeing already now during the COVID, COVID uh, pandemic. So it's an unexpected spin-off mm. right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One we could have done without, I guess. Involuntary experiment with billions of participants. <laughs> but beneficial, for sure. Yeah. So but, um, talking about that, what, what is, I don't even know, what is the typical duration of such a program? How long are you isolated for? Well, most of the missions are roughly one month we're doing. Uh, you could okay. go longer. Uh, there have been one-year missions, both on the Russian side and the American side, for instance. But what we see in the literature is once you've gone past the eight months threshold, you've seen almost everything. There's only very few phenomena that are uh, coming up beyond the eight-month uh, missions. And I would say 90% of the phenomena you've seen in the first month already. So as the psychology is not the main focus on our, on our work, mostly it's geoscience mm -hmm. and engineering, uh, this is a, is a side product. But there are missions that are taking longer. And uh, if you look at the Mars 500 mission uh, from the uh, Institute for Biomedical Problems in Russia, for instance, uh, they they did one of the more the longest missions at all. I think it, maybe it's even the longest mission that was taken. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny in this context. I also always think about uh, Biosphere Two in the U.S., right? Which mm -hmm. was two years, right? 
Oh yeah, amazing, um, amazing. Which, which I, I have so much respect for these people. I was like, yeah. I don't know how they like didn't like you know chop each, chop each other's heads off at the end. Of her. <laughs> it's really quite fascinating. So speaking about sort of again, so simulating the in space environment where you have a lot of limitations. Um, I mean, does that do you simulate simulate things like the restricted access to to food as well? Yes, uh, to, to to certain types of food. Yes, uh, to certain to to water, for instance. So um, I think it's only pertinent to say that that during those simulations, one thing you can do really is is uh, make the people appreciate the resources they have and this really comes comes from a heart as well because obviously if you don't treat your water processing facility properly it will it will uh, strike back if you don't treat your spaceship properly it will strike back and that means within a couple of days you become if you want it or not a a 100 ecologist because you realize that you're part of a larger system and if you mess up the system messes up as well and when you come back to earth you realize it's the same philosophy that we are all astronauts of spaceship Earth, so to say. Mm -hmm. And if we don't maintain our spacecraft properly, we are doomed astronauts in space. And so uh, I think one of the lessons learned to get from those missions is that you appreciate uh, the functionality of infrastructure. You appreciate things like rain. I mean, in which privileged world are we living in that there is drinkable water falling from the sky for free? I mean, yeah. that's absolutely unusual situation in the universe, and you, you learn how to appreciate it. I never complained about rain since my first missions. Yeah, that, 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 that's a good point. And suddenly, in like, you know, the future, you'll find yourself on Titan, and the rain is like, you know, uh, hydrocarbons. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, guess, I guess it's not that bad, right? Your fuel is raining from the sky. That's also not bad. But... <laughs> That's one way to sweet talk it myself. <laughs> but anyway, so besides other, I'm thinking other creature comforts, and, and again, sort of like forgive me for bringing this down to on to a mundane level, right? But you know, we've all heard like the stories about sort of like the bathroom on the ISS, and mm -hmm. so again, thinking like you know um, uh, terrestrial examples, I've 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 been to both Antarctica and the North Pole, and like the quote unquote bathrooms there are absolutely terrible. Like it's basically like an igloo where you've got outside and like 30, oh, yeah. 40 degrees I... negative. Is, is that something that's like you're also trying to simulate that, or is that like going well, too far <laughs> yeah when we don't try we have to uh it's you know uh, how do you deal with with human metabolites uh that's a general question but also including toilet stuff for yourself so yes uh you have to deal with this and uh things can break there as well that means that uh you will have to repair a toilet and, and you appreciate the toilet becoming a, a critical system you know like there's a reason why there are two toilets on the space station because yeah. you don't one and that, that that would fail you would have to abort the mission basically and so uh yes we we had our uh the other cold yellow situations they call it this <laughs> like this okay uh, yeah i can imagine what, what you're talking about um okay so let's move on from the toilets to to science as i understand that's sort of the main activity that the the, the, the analog astronauts that conduct scientific experiments can you give us some examples of what they're doing for every mission we have typically around uh, 15 to 20 experiments or so that undergo a peer-reviewed selection process first and they are mostly to demonstrate certain technologies and workflows so it's about the question how do you search for traces of life on mars without contaminating them with the very biological uh, you know, specimens you carry along as blind passengers on your skin, for instance. Um, it's about finding water. It's about you know, analyzing certain types of materials. It's about plant growth. Can you feed a group of astronauts uh, with supplementary biological uh, dietary needs when you grow uh, horseradish and other greeneries in, in, a, in a habitat, for instance? Then as I mentioned the human factors changes, but you also look into things like how would you operate a G-radar without the interference with all the radio communication. Um, how do you fly a drone on Mars? How do you operate a rover? Uh, and, and these are sometimes very general questions. Like, 
there is this quasi-religious debate going on in the space field for decades if you should send humans or robots to Mars. And you can imagine mm. who says what. Yeah. And so it's always said, oh, don't send the humans because they're too expensive and and a robot could do it much better. And so no, that, that's, not, that's not true. And we have reason to, to prove that. The thing is that we don't have the debate in our missions anymore. We don't talk about whether to send humans or robots, but we say send them both because they mm-hmm. have distinctive advantages. And there is a reason why even on Earth, there are certain tasks that are better to be done uh, by robots, like washing your car, than doing it with a human. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same applies to space as well. Uh, and so the question is, where's the sweet spot of the balancing between how much robotic, how much human, how much decision-making autonomy do you put in a field and how much do you leave on Earth? And these sweet spots have not been identified yet. Depend, depends on the infrastructure, of course, as well, the architecture. architecture. So one of the things we're doing is getting a, a, some feeling about this level of autonomy, uh, robotization uh, you would need for a perfect mission to Mars. Okay, so you actually answered my next question because I was going to ask you whether in your analog missions you sort of like send along some sort of like robots or rovers or, or whatnot on the missions as well. Yeah, totally, yeah. We, we have areas vehicles, we have robotic crawlers, we have, you know, autonomous vehicles that are following us. So this year, for instance, we're going to have, uh, it's called the Robo2, which is a pretty cool piece of equipment from a company called Matro, uh, which basically mm-hmm. can follow the astronaut like a, like a little dog transporting rock samples. We have the, the Mercato rover from the Technical University of Graz, where it can uh, put on like, what, 250 kilograms of payload and then drive to 60 kilometers an hour through the desert without a human on board. So these are these are the moments when you say, well, science can be darn fun. <laughs> I imagine. The, the other question, I guess, is about those experiments. So um, very often on the ISS, like this, these, I mean, there's always a lot of experimentation happening on the ISS. I guess that is its you know primary purpose. It's, it's a laboratory, right? The U.S. National right. Laboratory and so forth. But the, the experiments, of course, are very often handled by people who are not necessarily specifically trained in the experiment they are they end up helping with. Is that sort of the right. same on your missions? That Absolutely. Might have... okay. You will never be able to cover all the expertises when you select an astronaut for the next 20 years of missions or so. So what we do is we split the muscles and the brain. So the muscles on the field, these are highly trained analog astronauts that are executing the instrument, uh, the, the experiments from the researchers back home. So they are the extended eyes, ears, arms, and, and, and noses from the, from the experimenters. So the brain, when it comes to the interpretation of the data into making scientific decisions, that's something we still keep on Earth because that's something you can barely automize. The problem is that when you build a rover that should be able to distinguish certain types of rocks, that's something you can you can train or do with, with machine learning in terms of, you know, geological rock pattern recognition. That, that's, that's not easy, but it's doable. Mm-hmm. Problem is on Mars, you're not entirely sure what you're looking for. It's this, you know, the scientific process of that the trained geologist walks through a field of rocks and suddenly says, well, that, that rock looks strange. Let's mm-hmm. take a look, mm-hmm. look. How do you program the word strange into a rover? And so that's something where if we don't, we cannot really make sure that the astronaut has the training with years of studying, we leave it in, at home on Earth. Into this type of separation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember one of the pre- one of the recent episodes. I had uh, Jim Green, the chief scientist. From- oh, I'm sure you know Jim as well, right? He's such a great guy. And I've actually, uh, at some point in time in the episode, I asked Jim, you know, Jim, is there, you know, we're having robots on Mars, but is there anything that astronauts could do better than than the robots? And I think his answer was literally something like, well, almost anything. 
<laughs> but it's just like you said. I mean, there's many reasons. Sort of like we're, we're, right. we're more agile and we're more creative, and and totally, totally. it's also for the expiration speed. I mean, if you look into the mobility schemes of even uh, rovers like Perseverance, I mean, they're what moving with a couple of centimeters per 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 second or so. Uh, Steve Squires, who is the project scientist from the Mars Exploration Rovers, stood an opportunity a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. He said whatever Spirit or opportunity would have been doing within the first ten years of their mission. A trained geologist would have been able to done within a couple of weeks or so. So it's about efficiency. The geologist that has seen the most rocks is the best geologist. Mm-hmm. So you, you also you also seem to be squarely in the camp of like uh, between the sort of robotic exploration so. and human Take exploration so. yeah. people. Yeah. We need to send humans there. Absolutely. Take a drone for scouting, but let the humans do the science. And then so that brings me to the next question. Sort of like what, what kind of people are good for this? And what kind of people apply for this? Uh, well, applying... A number of, of backgrounds uh, are, are pertinent to applying with this. What we're looking for are people with either a uh, flight background or natural science or engineering, of course. We select them after well, the process that takes about half a year. We're assessing, which has to account on the previous selection, 637 individual parameters, which we study before we make a selection. And then we usually take up a group of five. Last time was actually seven because we had two analog astronauts from Israel joining us. And then they undergo a five-month intense uh, training, uh, after which they're qualified as Austrian space from uh, analog astronauts, which is more than any other group does on this planet for now. And then then they go under the mission-specific training. Typically, it takes about a year. And then they're assigned to a mission and, and then do it, basically. So it's quite a process behind this. We're looking for people who have a technical qualification or scientific, as I said, but also are excellent team players. It's the type of people where you say, well, that's a person I would like to share an after-work beer uh, or so. Okay. So they should be able to tell a joke on request, fix a broken bone, cook a healthy meal, but also be the shoulder to cry upon, but at the same time, take a command position when the circumstances demand it. So we say specialization is for insects. That's how Robert Heinlein put it. Uh, uh, humans are, are more than that. And that's, I think, that the beauty of, of uh, the human side of exploration is that we bring more than just the instrument operators to a, to a place. I always think of, uh, you know, the, the movie Contact with Jodie Foster, based upon the yep. book Contact. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. And there's a famous scene, uh, for those who, who don't know the movie, it's about uh, an alien uh, species sending a signal to build a machine to, to travel to other places in the universe. And so when Jodie Foster takes the voyage for the first time, she's stunned by the beauty of the places she's, she's been to, basically. And she said, and this is really stuck in my mind for what reason ever, she, has, she said, we shouldn't have sent scientists, we should have sent poets. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that, that brings up a whole like different question, which is this, you know, which we have touched upon in this podcast a few times is like, there's the whole scientific part, but then there's the sort of like, you know, the, the, the bringing humanity to space aspect. And for that, we almost certainly need to bring um, poets and other artists to space. I mean, is, is that something you have contemplated doing? Oh, yes, and we did. Uh, for every mission, we have a number of art projects uh, involved, which come from all walks of, of, of uh, artistic disciplines, so to say. Um, and we've never regretted it. Uh, so it always brings uh, an additional narrative. And if there's one thing we're good in our species, it's about telling stories. And that's exactly where those voyages bring us. I think that's, that's one of the their overarching patterns we see over and over again in our missions is that that uh, the missions not only bring knowledge but they also change you a little bit. It's uh, there's a spoke from uh, a uh, I don't know if you've heard of the 
uh, a researcher called Ibn Battuta in the 14th century. He's basically Marco Polo of the Arabic world. And he said, traveling first makes you speechless and then transforms you into a storyteller. And that's exactly what those missions do. You bring mm. back a, a narrative, yeah, which is a vision of a world yet to be discovered. And how beautiful is that? Huh? Okay, so 637 uh... Criteria. Wow. And, and I think that this is like a huge mix and including again, so like technical and but also like psychological. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird collection with, you know, obvious things like cholesterol levels, blood pressure and tropometric measures. That's that's the straightforward part, but these are things you can bring in the numbers and number of psychological selection items. Look, you're selecting out for, you know, uh, people that have uh, psychopathologies, of course, for certain selections. We also would put them in the room with kids, uh, with little kids and tell them, entertain them for half an hour. Yeah. And they see the The hardcore scientist, engineer, turning into sweat, you know, for how the heck they entertain little kids. Or we also test them for the ability to endure boredom, for instance. Yeah? We have selection items where they are sitting in a room, they don't know what the test is for, and they are separate. They are counting white and brown rice, uh, rice grains for, for an hour, and they don't know how long the test is, they don't know what they're being selected for, and then you see the people, you know, getting... Jiggy-jaggy and then starting to move their feet and uh, keep drinking their glass of water and then watch, watching their phone and so on. And we say, well, you stay focused, yeah? And show us that you can stay focused with counting gra uh, grain rice, rice grains for an hour. Yeah. That's hilarious. That almost reminds me. Um, we, we always we, we just had the 60th anniversary of, of Yuri Gagarin's flight, and if I remember correctly, like part of the cosmonaut training in the early days in Russia was like the isolation chamber, and the guys didn't know how long they would go in yeah. for. Like yeah. it could yeah. be an hour, it could be a yeah. week. It's very important because people always think of these dramatic motion uh, moments when you know a Bruce Willis walking to the rocket <clears throat> with the helm under the arm in slow motion and the heroic music in the background. But in reality, the space newness factor wears off after like two weeks typically or so. And then you realize, oh my gosh, I'm stuck in this container for the next uh, 10 months or so. And that means uh, that you have to be able to separate the uh, shiny notions of a Hollywood movie from the actual uh, work mm. while you're there. And that's, I think that happens at latest in the very first moment when you step into a space for the first time in your life, because you realize I, my life and my health are now depending on the functioning of a thing I did not build. That's a pretty uh, revealing moment for most of us. And you realize this is actual work I'm doing now. And this is, you know, you sweat inside and it's, it's there's a, physiological and psychological workload you have there's you know the brain load is pretty high and uh, it, there's a reason why the first the first time you put in a space in the Austrian space forum it takes about five hours until you're inside huh? it's faster than but but that's the first EVA it takes five hours for the dawning it's, um, it's interesting we, we could talk for hours about it it's also it kind of there really seem to be a lot of parallels with I guess with with military and I guess that makes sense mm -hmm. then that so many astronauts used to be from the military and it's just said like just the boredom and the waiting that reminds me like once a friend of mine who has been to to live combat who told me like look most of the time you're not shooting you're actually just waiting around yeah. to shoot yeah, totally yeah absolutely absolutely okay so when is the um when is the next analog mission uh, between the 4th and 31st of October this year so we are going to the Negev Desert in southern Israel, a mm. fantastic uh, Mars analog site. With a high, one of the reasons we went there was because there's very high diversity in geological landmarks that are also represented on Mars. Um, we have a tremendous support from the Israeli Space Agency and uh, and the people at B Mars there, uh, which are working with us. 
they're as we speak, they are building the habitat according uh, to our, our needs as well. So they are putting an amazing amount of effort into this. And uh, so there will be a, a Mars station uh, deployed in October in the Negev Desert. And this will be the, uh, yeah, the, the center point of the Martian research world, uh, at least for analog research for, for October, I believe. Lots of good science coming up. Uh, crew has been chosen right now undergoing the mission mm -hmm. training. We have a brand new mission support center, which is, uh, which is being built right now. And yeah. I can't wait for a total arrive. Is that one sort of like done and dusted in the sense you mentioned the crew is chosen, are the experiments all chosen, or is there still any way of like mm -hmm. getting involved there for people who are interested? Well, the experiments were chosen already two years ago, actually. Um, yeah. So the onboarding process is already in full swing, of course. However, uh, we offer opportunities for people who are interested in joining us for the mission because there's quite a high manpower demand when it comes to flight controllers, when it comes to support people both in Israel, but also mostly in, in Innsbruck as well, uh, in, in Austria, for, for supporting the mission. So so roughly for, for every analog astronauts, we needed at least 20 people in the background who are servicing them. So we are believing we're right now around 20 people working on that project. So if you're if someone out there is interested in joining such a mission uh, and jumping in such a late point, it's still possible, actually. Um, we still have uh, slots open for the uh, next analog mission basic training uh, course, which is a virtual course for obvious reason now. But uh, we're, you know, we're looking for people with a passion for space. You don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to be a scientist. Uh, but you really have to demonstrate that you are able to commit yourself uh, to an idea like this. And I can I can really guarantee you that being in such a project is a very extraordinary experience, not only because you're working with people that are like-minded in a very unusual project, but it's a project with it that is by far bigger than, than a single person. Um, I think we are really like the shipbuilders uh, that are preparing for what can be said to be the biggest journey of our generation. That means when we see people landing on Mars in 20 to 30 years from now, uh, it means there's. Uh, it's not unlikely that you, the people like like those participating in our missions can say, well, I was part of the journey. I was one of the people building the fundaments for that particular cathedral of science. Terrific. Well, you know, best of luck with that with that mission in Israel. It, it sounds terrific. And by the way, one last question on that. You just mentioned flight controllers. How does it actually look like? How do the people get to the facility? I mean, is there any sort of simulation, simulated experience you're doing there too? Because it, it seems like it would be so anticlimactic if like the minivan drops you off on Mars, right? <laughs> uh, actually, yeah, unfortunately, yes, we are starting our missions at the point when there was a successful landing. There's a lot of things that can, can, can go wrong, okay. of course, but we're not building the, ro uh, the rockets and no, we're not hovering over the, over the uh, Israeli desert for a half an hour before landing down. Um, so it really starts with waking up in the habitat base. Yeah, and I, I this is a very, as you say, anticlimactic. It's just the right expression. But believe me, reality catches up with you very soon. I remember from my uh, second mission, actually, I was um, I was a health and safety officer at the Mars Desert Research Station uh, in 2006, uh, many years ago. And I remember the the last day when we were brought back to Earth on a quotation marks. The scenario was we go to deep sleep on Mars and wake up on Earth. I just have a little bit of framework uh, storyline, so to say. So the next day we would wake up on, Mars, on, on the Earth and go to the airlock and uh, without a spacesuit, obviously, because we're already on Earth, just with the jumpsuits, uh, our, our flight overalls. And the commander would open the outer hatch of uh, the module without the depressurization procedure. So uh, all the alarms would go, down, go off, obviously, but it, of course, would, would be okay. And so he would, with a screeching noise, he would open the outer hatch like this. And I remember that distinct moment when everybody in our six-person crew immediately gasped for air, going like, <gasps> 
trying to hold their breath. <laughs> and, and we, we realized that, that that's stupid. It doesn't make sense here. But you're so deep into the simulation that once that happens and that would be on Mars, your first reflex would be to hold your breath, which would not be very successful over a long time. On Mars, obviously, but it's your, it's your first reflex. And so that gives you some indication of how deep you are into such a simulation. As I said, you're not on Mars, but you're not fully on Earth either. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I guess you should do something to, like, make that transition less abrupt. I don't know, maybe you just put, like, VR goggles or something on the guys and simulate, like, you simulate, like, a journey in a minivan or something. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, enough about the analog missions. Uh, let's quickly touch upon some of your other projects in, in the forum. Um, you mentioned at the beginning the, the Adler, the CubeSat. So yes. just briefly, what is that? Right, right. So CubeSats are a classical entry gateway drug into the space field when it comes to building satellites. What we uh, embarked on was together with our fantastic partner, Findus Venture and uh, Spire, uh, who is operated also by Allspin. We said, well, let's build a small satellite, three units, three uh, U, that means 10 by 10 by 30 centimeters satellite, which is slated for launch by the end of this, this year in New Zealand. So it's going to fly at low Earth orbit around 500 kilometers, and it will be detecting space debris. So for those of you not familiar with the term, basically means space junk. Um, and although you might think that space is infinite from dimensions, which is true, in fact, the most interesting locations are surprisingly, surprisingly close to the Earth. And so anything we produce up there in terms of, you know, unspent rocket fuel particles, uh, nuts and bolts uh, from satellite collisions, natural sources like micrometeorites and so on, they all create an environment where you have literally hundreds of millions of particles, typically the size of, you know, you can barely see them with a few micrometers large or so, but they're traveling with velocities between, let's say, 10, 15 kilometers per second, which means Mm-hmm. If you have a particle the size of one centimeter, for instance, the size of a small bullet, that's like a gun that hits your spacecraft and might destroy it. And that's called space junk, space debris. And that's an emerging program, a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very big problem. Yeah. And I mean, that example, I mean, it's actually faster. I think it's faster than a bullet by yeah, absolutely. quite a bit. Several times. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, just to give another example to people, I'm pretty sure I remember NASA said like a one centimeter piece of space junk hitting the shuttle at the wrong spot could have taken out the entire shot. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. So we, we have situations where, for instance, this the space station has to take evasive maneuvers when there's a piece of space junk crossing their pathways. It happens about once, once a month or every, twice, uh, every, every two months or so. Although they have a really, you know, a tank-like structure. They have uh, bumper plates uh, to protect the pressurized uh, compartments and so on. So, so they, they, uh, the outside of the space station actually looks on a magnifying glass like a like a lunar crater surface mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and this is an increasing problem because if you think of you know we have now uh, what uh, 4000 uh, satellites in, in earth orbit or so and now we're talking about large scale constellations like uh, one web and whatever the name is um, we're talking about at least 10,000 satellites in the next decade and probably even pretty much more yeah much more than that yeah, so we're talking about current constellation several thousands of satellites. And uh, even if they are produced in a very clean way, they are still producing uh, space debris. And there's more space debris created when you have satellite collisions, for instance, or in the satellite tests or so. Uh, yeah, certainly um, it's it's something we need to keep our eye on. And 
It's a good reminder. We really should do an episode on that. I, I will work <laughs> on that in the near future. <laughs> environmental, environmental protection yeah. does not stop at the top of the atmosphere. That that is absolutely true, and it is really kind of scary. It's sort of like you know we've we've polluted the oceans, right? Where there's a lot of junk in the oceans, but like you said, this this is junk that's flying around at like bullet. It speeds higher than bullets, so it's Absolutely. very, very dangerous if, junk. Seriously, if, if we mess that up, we are blocking or hindering the access to space for future generations for decades to come, actually. That would be very bad. Yeah, very, especially very, very bad. Again, besides, so we, we talked about the analog missions and uh, experimentation in general and, and the Adler. Is, is there anything else you want to highlight about the current projects of the forum? Well, we're, there's a number of research projects that are pretty, well, not, not, not the stand of the shelf. Like, for instance, we're looking into spatial materials with an ESA project. Uh, we're looking into the idea of using bacterial dyes for, for introducing antimicrobial uh, properties to uh, astronaut underwear, for instance. Yeah, So this is a, a big ESA project. Mm -hmm. that we've done. Uh, we're working on projects that are mitigating the dust. Uh, so we're really trying to tackle one problem at a time, uh, how to make exploration more safer and more efficient because we all have this perception that, oh, we've been to the moon, and uh, so we know how to do it, and the technology has progressed, so easy peasy. The problem is that the technology that was developed for the Apollo missions is not able to survive on Mars for more than a week, I would say. Both spatial technologies, but also exploration, has been a victim of its own success. We think it's it's, it's not a fundamental problem anymore. But I believe that there, as always, the, the devil is in the details. And so there's a long road away ahead of us. Um, so I think the next 20 years until the first human mission to Mars, will not get boring. We need more of those analog missions. Yeah, terrific. And we, we'll be looking out for more of those. And then you know, when more come up, then people can, I guess, apply probably on the webpage of the, the Austrian Space. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. It's come, come here. It's www.oskarekowiskifoxtrot.org, O-E-V-F.org. Terrific. We'll put that in the in the show notes. Oh, so people can easily click on the link. Okay, let's come back and, well, switch gears, I should say, and, and talk about another aspect, another another project of yours, and you already mentioned uh, Ibn Battuta and uh, the importance of storytelling. So you are actually, of course, also a science communicator, and you have your own TV show in Austria, I understand. So tell us more about that. Yeah, it's called uh, PM Wissen. Uh, for the ones who are coming from German-speaking countries, many of our listeners might remember the uh, PM Magazine. Sure. And uh, actually, it's, it's a TV version of magazines like... Uh, Many people are familiar with popular mechanics in the U.S., for instance, and it's similar, but it's a TV version of it. And uh, the our our, our broadcaster, Sevastopol, uh, was very ambitious. He said, "Well, there are no big science shows in Austrian uh, TVs anymore, uh, so let's let's change that." And they would put me on a, a prime time location, Thursday, twenty uh, so eight eight o'clock, which is you know you are competing with with uh, soccer games and other big 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 news stuff. And so we weren't really sure if this would turn out to be practical, and if after ten episodes we uh, we would be you know brought down again. The fact is, this Monday, we had 100th recording of the show. We are now in the fourth season. We are by far the largest science show and tech show in, in Austria now. Mm -hmm. And we're reaching out to communities we have not expected before. So we're really happy with that development and really gives hope that, that there are people out there who will love sci-tech and who say, well, let, tell me what's on, what's up there, not only in space, but also in biology, in medicine, in psychology, history. It's across all fields of science. I remember when, when I grew up, there was a show in Germany that was on in the evening at prime time. I forget the name, mm -hmm. but I was... Uh, uh, the talk show, for instance, was a very famous one. Mm. 
Uh, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway. but I remember it was it was literally on like prime time prime time, and I watched it religiously. By the way, is um, where is your show available? Is it on cable or is it uh, is it, it also on YouTube? It's online, uh, but uh, also every Thursday eight fifteen in Austria, and every Wednesday in Germany. So it's also on satellite, but it's also available online as well uh, on the pm-wissen.com. Uh, you see all the the fields and uh, and I can tell you it's it's pretty glossy high end. We have about 50 people working on the show. A little bit of the math that's saying well, if we have uh, 100 shows and uh, 10 stories per or 10 science or research questions per show, that means uh, we tackle about 1,000 questions and 1,000 answers. And every show is about 200 uh, information bits. So we we did the count like how you know, any numbers we are presenting, any special technical terms we're presenting or so. That means 20,000 facts and factinos that. We we uh, we broadcasted since uh, the beginning of 2018. Terrific. And how how did that come about? How do you get involved in that? Oh, that <laughs> that's a crazy story, actually. Yeah, the, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in my office as the director of the Austrian Space Program. The, the phone rings and the, the strange guy I've never heard of. Uh, he was actually from the German production company who was producing it. Uh, said, "Listen, Dr. Grimmer, uh, we are doing a new science show. I can tell you a lot, but uh, have you ever thought about being a science show host in TV?" And my first reaction was, uh, "No." And I, honestly, I don't have the time now. So that was just about the hang up. I was about to put down the receiver of the telephone and just heard him screaming on the other end saying, no, 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 wait, 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 listen to me, listen to me. And so um, he kept talking and, and persuaded me to to actually consider doing it. And that's where I ended up as a, <laughs> quite a bad moment, I have to say. Terrific. And fortunately, it happened that way because we, we definitely yeah. can always need more sort of like uh, science education for, for the broad masses. And we'll put the link to the TV show on in the show notes as well. To round up this episode, Gernot, let me ask you a couple of questions. One, I mean, you, you're involved in so many different things in space, um, and, and your educational background is in, in space as well, right? You have a PhD in exploration astrobiology, which we could talk about, about too. And, but what, what excites you most about space at the moment? I think it's the prospect of living at the right time and the right place in the universe. Uh, we are too late to explore the oceans and uh, too early to explore the galaxy, but we're somewhere in between. But we are after 33 thousand generations of our species existence, the first one who has at the grasp of our hands the potential to, to search for life in the universe. And I want to be part of that. So being a part of that story that brings us to Mars, that makes us a multiplanetary spe species, is a privilege and a calling at the same time. That's terrific. And I, you know, I absolutely feel the same way. So it's the moment when when we leave Earth and sort of like enter the realm of was previously confined to to science fiction. And so this is the segue which to, to my regular final question. What kind of science fiction is your favorite? Yeah, I, I love science fiction. I mean, mostly for entertainment. So yes, I go to the movies and watch The Martian or uh, whatever they're called for inspiration. I believe that science fiction and science are like a dancing pair in a ballroom event. You know, they, they need the swing from each other Mm -hmm. to fertilize each other and to, to get moving. And then there are shows like, like yours, for instance, who are like the music, which is synchronizing and harmonizing this type of swing. And so I think it's, it's, like, a, it's a, like a ballet, and we are, we are the, the, the players in that. And that's, that's a quite a, if you look back in the history of humankind, that's quite an unusual situation. And so I really feel privileged to be part of this, after this generation, actually. Terrific. Yes, same here. And I wish to some extent there was even more near-term non-fantasy science fiction to actually 
prepare us for the steps we're about to take, you know, going to Mars and, and so forth. Yeah. There are some good attempts out there. If you look at the Netflix Mars, for instance, yeah. which did a pretty good job in, in making it as realistic as possible. Oh, the Martian. I mean, it, it, it's, it's yes, entertaining, but the, the book, which is based upon, uh, has quite some some merits when it comes to uh, tech and workflow. So, um, yeah, I think there, there are more attempts out there. I think people are more scrutinizing and more critical uh, that the uh, movie scripts have been plausible and 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 yeah and, and realistic. Yeah. Gernot, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was this was super interesting. Again, we're going to put the the links to the to the forum and to the TV show in in the show notes. Best of luck with the analog mission um, this this fall, and hopefully we have you on again sometime in the future. Thanks, Raphael, and on to Mars. <laughs> on to Mars. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.